0: What's up, folks? On this episode today, we are going to be talking with an ex IRS agent who's really going to give you guys a lot more comfort. Not quite bending the rules, but really pushing the envelope on deductions. How do you do taxes? And if you're still doing the same old stuff, like putting your money into a defa- tax deferred account, 529, 401k plan, stop doing that, folks. That is for the masses out there. And part of it is understanding the tax code was created for smart people to follow the rules and pay less taxes. But here the insight from the ex-Iris agent himself. And here we go. What's up, Simple Passive Cashflow listeners? Now, a lot of you guys aren't really house flippers doing all the active stuff, yet you guys are catching on to a lot of the tax strategies of the wealthy, which To name a few, using passive losses to knock out your passive income and maybe using rep status to knock out your high ordinary W-2-1099 income. But a lot of people are very new to that idea. And something I get talking to a lot of you guys, I still do that free intro calls for those of you guys who jump into our ecosystem by joining at simplepassivecashful.com slash club. And I get a sense of a lot of people are like, really law-abiding citizens here. Y'all are the ones who, when your teacher says do extra credit and you have an A, you guys do the extra credit even though you don't need to. And you guys really freak out and more importantly stress out, which I'm all about not worrying about things, especially when you're you're not doing anything criminal or doing fraud. Right? So today we, I brought on Robert Norland, who is a former IRS special agent, to talk about what he's seen on The other side of the line. And what I hope today is you guys get a little bit understanding on how the IRS works and the processes and the steps that you almost have to try to do everything wrong to get hauled off to jail. Uh, But but yeah, thanks for jumping on, Robert. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Lane. It's a pleasure to be with you. Paint the picture for your former life working for the IRS.
1: Growing up as a teenager, I always had this Love for law enforcement. Those of, who grew up in the 70s watched Chips and SWAT and Miami Vice and all those cool things. And I always enjoyed that type of vocation. I wanted to be in that. I to be a special agent with the IRS, I mean, with the FBI at one time. And they usually hire accountants or lawyers. And so I went into college. My father was an accountant or CPA. And I went into college to start an accounting career and got an accounting degree, and then later on got my CPA license. And when I got out of college, I started working for a small CPA firm and thoroughly enjoyed the CPA world, but I also was playing cops and robbers on the weekend as a reserve deputy sheriff for my local county and really enjoyed the law enforcement side, but also had this accounting skill set as well. So I found out that later on in life that the IRS has a criminal investigation division which are, who are solely responsible for investigating tax crimes and other financial crimes as well. The IRS has sole jurisdiction in tax crimes, period. So anything, Secret Service, DEA, FBI, Homeland Security, they do not have jurisdiction in tax crimes, but IRS does. And out of about, I think it's 60,000, 70,000 employees, or approximately 2,000 of them are gun toters. They are considered criminal investigators. They're on the same par, same vocation level as Secret Service, FBI, DEA, all those special agents. IRS has a special agent as well. And it was a good marriage between law enforcement and accounting. So we use our accounting skills to chase tax evaders and money launderers around the world, literally. And we're considered the world's finest financial investigators. And I've joined them for about 20 years.
0: And Robert wrote the book on this, folks. You guys can grab his book on Amazon. It's called Criminal Tax Secrets What Every Defense Attorney Should Know An Insider's Guide to Evaluating Every Stage of a Criminal Tax Investigation. So I get, let's, um, It's kind of, I know this is on the forefront of people's heads, right? Out there. We have a lot of accredited, passive investors. And let's just pick an example from this guy. I guess one one gray area that I see a lot of people doing that even I'm typically pretty conservative with the tax stuff, right? I'm not a CP attorney. So I tend to give, give people ideas to talk to their tax professional on the conservative side. And one thing that comes up is real estate professional status. Why? So people can use their passive losses to drop their AGI to whatever they so choose. Or if they have the passive activity losses from things like real estate that gives them the bonus depreciation and loss. One thing that I hear people doing is, oh, I'm just going to get my wife or I'm just going to get a real estate license. And I'm always like, no, dude, that has nothing to do with your active participation portfolio. But if the guy out there is doing that because he heard it from a friend and I guess, what would happen here? What is the chances of this person getting audited? And then maybe let's walk through some of the steps and, you know, the letter. And I guess what happen- What's this- What happens, I guess?
1: The IRS is mainly a collection and assessment of a tax function. They assess the tax and they collect the tax. That's what they do. So if there is an issue regarding tax law, hey, maybe you were a W-2 employee and, um, you report something wrong, or maybe you're a 1099 self-employed individual and you should have been a W-2, there's, there are various mechanisms that the IRS comes in, they assess the situation, then they figure out if there's a tax due or not. And then once they figure out a tax due, then they figure out how they're going to collect this money. That's really the main focus of the Internal Revenue Service. The burden of proof during that period of time is on the taxpayer to prove that this was not income or this deduction was legitimate. For like your tax, your passive losses and that type of thing, the burden of proof is on the investor or the real estate invest professional to show that this is truly legitimate deduction or a loss and that type of thing. So the burden of proof is on the taxpayer, not on the IRS. From the criminal side of things is when things go a little bit different, and that is the burden of proof for the government is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is guilty of this crime. So the IRS, when it comes to going from a civil issue to a criminal issue, it's reversed. The deduction is automatically assumed. It's automatically assumed that you can take this loss until the government shows up and says, no, you should not have to, or you didn't do what you're supposed to do. I'll give you an example. The audience for a criminal investigation is 12 people who may or may not have college education sitting in the jury box, determining whether or not someone has committed some type of tax crime, the IRS is not going to go to court on something of a passive loss versus not a passive loss. It's too complicated. It's not worthy of putting someone in prison for. And just think of it as a generic person walking down the street. Are they going to know the difference between passive loss and non-passive losses? and all that? They're not going to know that stuff. What they will understand is this, you made $10,000 a year, you reported $10,000 a year, but actually made a million dollars a year. They'll completely understand all that, okay? Uh, If you try to just hide the income in general, not just misunderstand the tax law, but hide the income, and that's where the difference is. So whenever there is a criminal tax investigation on on anybody, there has to be an element of what they call willfulness. Something that's so blatant that anybody sitting in that jury box is going to nod their head going, you can't do that type of stuff, you know? Uh, so that's kind of how they separate up between the two. So the person who's concerned about, oh, is this lost tax deductible or not, from a criminal standpoint, it doesn't make a difference. Now, civilly, they'll have to prove their point with a CPA or a tax attorney on their side, but are you going to go to prison for it? No, you're not.
0: Yeah, great perspective, right? That whole talking to a jury. Although I would think most jury folks in the box hate millionaires like us, but that's a separate fact.
1: (laughs) It's capitalism 101. Everybody wants to be the millionaire. Everybody wants to be that person. The question is whether or not they are intentionally trying to hide things. That's one thing. i think give an example. Putting your – got a lawsuit or you owe the IRS a lot of money, and you start putting assets in your spouse's name. Anybody with common sense knows you didn't earn that – you know, you earned the money. Your spouse didn't earn that money. And then they'll start getting picked off because you're trying to avert the system, do what we call tax evasion versus tax avoidance.
0: I'll give you guys another bonehead one, and this one has come from – we have a free Facebook group, and you pay for what you get, and I don't recommend any free stuff these days. That's why people join our family office group. But there was some guy out there who had this cockamamie idea of, all right, you have your LLC – You buy a car, you write it off, you get the deduction, and then you pass it off personally to yourself and you never take the the income on personally. I'm like, dude, that's fraud. That's exactly what you're talking about. Like, you idiot. Like, you can't do that. But what about, okay, here's another more, like, example, right? An investor comes to our three-day retreat in Hawaii. And they're stuck in a room with me for two days straight, listening to my PowerPoints and filling their head with all these different strategies, interacting with all these other people within our mastermind, mm-hmm. spend a few thousand dollars with the airfare, some meals, and then the admission ticket and some hotels. And also, oh, by the way, they also make 10,000 plus a year in their passive investments. To me, I'm not a CPA attorney or whatever, but to me, that is totally illegitimate business expense in the pursuit of them making income on their business. How would that yes, be? That would,
1: that would be legitimate. It's like anything else with training. You have CPAs that go to training on a yearly basis, 40 hours a year. They're required to go to training. They don't go to, they can go online, but amenities training conventions are in Las Vegas, in Hawaii, in some cases or even overseas on cruise ships. It's totally legitimate as long as it's ordinary, necessary, and reasonable that's what. That's really the criteria.
0: So that is an example of not criminal, but let's just say somebody is, they they take a one month trip to Hawaii and the the bonehead move, right? And now they're expensing $50,000 on this trip. I don't know what they're doing with their money, but I mean, that definitely steps over the line of egregious. So how does this, work its way through the system, I guess, just to play a little sensitivity analysis here.
1: Okay, the bottom line is that when it comes to the criminal aspect, there are no dollar limits for a crime. In the statute to commit a crime, tax evasion, it doesn't say anything over $10 is tax evasion. It's the attempt to evade or defeat a tax. Whether it's $1, it's irrelevant. Okay, so there's no dollar dollar floor for any of this stuff. Now the question is going to be: Is everybody? I say everybody. Let's just say everybody, just for kicks and giggles, has cheats on their taxes. turned somehow, some way. You're supposedly if you find a penny on the floor in the in the parking lot of your grocery store, you're supposed to claim it as income. No one does that, right? Or the ten, or the ten dollars, or a dollar bill, whatever, whatever else it is. You're supposed to claim it as income. It's de minimis. No one ever does it. It's completely understandable. The irs when it comes to prosecuting individuals are looking for those who are worthy of jail time prison time and the prisons in the judicial system has something what they call the sentencing commission which is a guidebook for judges to determine how to sentence people and the reason why they have this guidebook is so to make sure that people in hawaii are treated the same as people in des moines iowa It's treated to people the same in Miami and New York and everywhere else, okay? So the standard is the same across the United States. That's what they're looking for. So when you look at this guidebook, you will see that the number of months or number of years that someone spends in prison is based upon the tax loss. Anything around $80,000, $50,000, okay, and total tax loss is not going to meet an active prison sentence. Can a judge do it? Yes, they can do whatever they want to. But the guidelines say less than a year, which is typically no no active prison time. So it's around forty, fifty thousand dollars, somewhere around there, of a tax loss would be just a starting point. When you look at the sentences that are people who are evading taxes, it is typically a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, a million dollars in taxes. Lots of money. Because remember, the jury is people and your peers. And do they want to put someone in prison for $20,000? Probably not. 200000 Now you're talking. So you have, they have to look, in, in, in that's a point of view. The IRS, the typical criminal investigator, only does about two or three tax cases a year. So this is not like a street cop who hands out parking tickets or speeding tickets. It's a very methodical, very slow process. And so when the IRS is picking who to choose to go to prison, in a sense, or investigate, they're looking at the big numbers. Because ultimately, they want to make a splash in the headlines saying this person went to prison for multiple years for evading taxes.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of drug drugies, right? Like they want to do the big cocaine bus of the shift, yep. but ultimately, letting all the small kilos go, right?
1: In, in some way, you have to pick your battles. The government only has so much resources. You don't have so many people to go around to do these investigations, and you don't want to spend time working on a case that, frankly, the person gets no jail sentence out of it. It doesn't. Now, can a judge do what a judge wants to do? Yes. The federal judges have immense power about how they're going to handle things. Should someone who's a mayor who has committed $30,000 in tax evasion go to prison or at least lose their job? Probably because they are a position of trust, right? politicians are in position of trust so the IRS will deviate down from their normal practices because certain or a cop you got a dirty cop yeah sure you want to deal with that situation but the plumber they're gonna be normal your normal run-of-the-course type of evaluating whether or not they should be investigated
0: so you mentioned the word just a little while ago tax evasion what is the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance
1: Good question. Tax evasion is knowing that you owe the money. You just don't want to pay it. But <laughs> Sam fried
0: is like playing that game, right? Like he's saying, oh, I didn't know what happened. I didn't know. I don't know. Who's that again? The FTX guy with the senior uh,
1: hair. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on <laughs> that until all the facts are out there. But the point being is there is an element of willfulness. Now, anybody who has kids knows what willfulness is. You know, you got this kid uh, who's always getting caught doing something, and his excuse was, was, "I, I didn't mean to do it that way. And I have a teenage daughter. I was like, why is everything that's a mistake always in your favor, not in mine? Why can't you make a mistake in the parent's favor versus yours? But the element of willfulness is the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance. Willfulness being you intentionally are doing things wrong. Now, how do you define intentional? There's a couple of ways. It's like being a parent. If the person is always doing it over a period, long period of time, like for years they've been doing this, the amounts material in nature, this is not a transposing error when someone put down 69 versus 96 in the tax term by accident. This is somebody who's adding zeros to the deductions, falsifying documents, having a second set of books. All those are considered willfulness. lying to investigators or lying to the IRS once you're caught. That's willfulness. If you make a mistake,, eh, made a mistake, you go on, but willfulness has the, in- the intentionality of it of knowing what's right but doing the opposite.
0: So, a guy. I don't recommend doing this, folks. You guys need to have income in whether it's an LLC that you invest out of, or if even if you're just. And I will confidently say this: legal entities are mainly for legal protection, and really has nothing to do with taxes. So whether you have an LLC or not, you can still take these business deductions just do it as a sole prop. But say a guy only makes a hundred ten grand that year as a passive investor, but they're writing off. $25,000. And just for some strange reason, luck of the draw, uh, they get audited and they get like a letter. I guess maybe talk to us a little bit about like how are, what's the odds of getting flagged or even checked in the system? And then what's the steps? Can they get a letter or what do, they, what, what do people do?
1: Typically the letter is a mismatch of information. For example, there is a sell of property and someone forgets to put it on the tax return. The IRS has a 1099 sell of property in their system and they compare it to the tax return and it's not on the tax return. So they'll send a letter going, hey, we've got this 1099, you didn't report. What do you say about this? And that's kind of how the letter, that's how usually the audit starts.
0: And and I don't know if you, you may not know this, but just for that particular example, is it, are people matching, like, they can't be matching up all the 1099s in the system, like trillions of these transactions and checking it to yours. Of course, they're using artificial intelligence and computers, but they can't be running it on all the files. Are they? I
1: don't know the answer behind the scenes. All I do Got know it. is that most of the time it's a mismatch. The Got W2s it. are wrong, the 1099s. The common mistake is the sell of stock. The 1099 brokerage to sell a stock that just failed to report it. God. And it's a mistake. That's usually what that's usually what happens. I will uh,
0: comment that like a lot of our investors got pissed at us like in 2018 after like the Security Act. But basically, people they like to use LLCs for anonymity, which I don't really think even works. But like they're like, oh, I want to hide behind this. See. But then in 2018, I believe like people had to put their social security number and then they blamed it on us. They got all pissed at us. And I'm like, dude, that's what like, your government is requiring us to do. They need to put your social security number because what these other boneheads are doing is they're hiding all their assets in these LLCs and not reporting it to themselves. So yeah, everybody needs to put their name tags on their stuff from now on. And I actually like this because this really makes it a little bit harder for the criminals, the people who are doing tax evasion. For the for now, the IRS to actually be able to use computers to maybe have a chance to catching this because if not, it's impossible, right? Like it's just there. Down.
1: There is so much stuff out there, tax evasion out there, and tax fraud. There's no way the IRS can go after all of them, so they have to pick and choose. That's just how yeah. this is how it works. Now, the chances of someone being audited, of course, it depends on their income, but it's one or two percent chance, very small based upon the numbers that are out there right now. And so that's how it works. But most of your audits are, or correspondence is based upon a mismatch of informational tax return. Now there are, is a chance where the tax return is for audit for whatever reason. And then, then there's, a, there's an auditor involved or maybe there's some type of correspondence in the mail saying, please let us know how you got these deductions or how you got these losses and you, you have to explain yourself in that situation. But that's just how that works. Now, what the auditors are trained in is if they see something that's just totally whack, what they call badges of fraud, things that just don't smell right. You claim $10,000 in gross receipts and you may ask for your bank statement and you get a million dollars in gross receipts. Something's weird there. And not pass a smell test or you bring in documents that are fishy in nature, that don't correspond with reality. Maybe your documents are falsified. Those are badges of fraud. You got a second set of books. You're always putting things in somebody else's name. Those types of things make you scratch your head going, huh, once again, willfulness. They're willfully trying to do the bad thing. And then that's when they take all that information and they turn it over to a criminal investigator for them to take a look at it and let them run with it.
0: Yeah, but phase one, they send the letter based on one one small deviation. If maybe if they don't like what they see or you don't give them what they want, then they blow it up and look at the whole tax return. And then once if they yeah, see the badges, you, you then you almost, go to phase three.
1: Yeah, you almost have to deserve. You almost have to want to be investigated.
0: You have to do so
1: many boneheaded things that it looks so obvious that there's a there's a problem here. And most of the time, it's not based upon the audit. Many times, it's based upon the collection of tax. That is where most of your cases, most of the IRS cases come from, when it comes from a civil issue to a criminal issue. It's not the audit. It's the IRS has denied deductions or maybe had to do a substitute for return because there's no return filed. And then they assess this large tax liability. And then they try to collect. And when they try to collect, that's when people start really doing squirrely stuff. Like putting things in spouses' names and girlfriends' names and putting it offshore or opening up a different business, closing down a business, open up a different warrant in somebody else's name and a nominee name and tell the IRS, oh, I owe nothing, but they control everything. That is where people really start getting in trouble when it comes to tax crimes.
0: Yeah. So for the yeah. people stealing bubble gum at home and worried, like they get the letter, right? And there's some... Yep. Small deviation, do they call their CPA and what do you suggest there? Like, I, I've heard, like, never talk to the IRS personally yourself. You always let the CPA be your in most
1: it. part. I would say that's probably a good idea, but there's always a cost benefit analysis to it. If you're going to pay your CPA 300, 400, 500, 600, whatever the number is in your rate, there's a cost benefit to it. Is this a $20,000 problem, $200,000 problem, or is this a 20 dollars problem? If it's a couple hundred dollars, I just pay it and go on with it. That's just me. Uh, but to some people, a couple hundred dollars is a lot of money, but they're not going to, they can't afford to have a professional represent them either. So it depends on the amount of money that people are really dealing with. I got an example of where I got a client now that's, that owes a quarter of a million dollars. They're going, they're going to want to hire someone in order to represent them well. But someone for two or three thousand dollars, I wouldn't hire anybody. Uh, I just go. Either pay the bill or do the best you can and see what happens.
0: Yeah, but certainly once you get to that kind of second phase where they're looking at your whole tax return, that's definitely when you bring in the support.
1: If they start I, – I here's the issue. Number one is if you have nothing to hide, I wouldn't worry too much about it. If they start asking a lot of questions and you do have something to hide, you, you know you did wrong, right? Then I would start getting professional help, yes, for sure, because – The revenue officer, the one that's in charge of collecting the tax and figuring out how you're going to pay, there are that's where the crime usually typically happens, is when there's a tax due and they're trying to collect. And they are trained to look for these key indicators of the badges of fraud. And when they find badges of fraud, what they'll do is that they'll expand the years to see whether or not it's just not a one time thing. What's we go willfulness again. Is it a one time deal, a one year deal? They may look at that by one year, but then they'll expand it to two or three years. And then they'll start digging deeper into personal credit cards and whether or not you're expensing Victoria's Secrets as a some type of rental expense, that type of stuff. So they will start expanding the scope of their investigation and then determine whether or not to refer for a criminal investigation.
0: Yeah. And I guess at this stage, it hasn't gone criminal yet. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, like just any type of law and order, people, I've been watching a lot of that show lately, and even tax law, like everything ends in a settlement. It never gets acted out in court. And at the end of the day, it's like a deal is made. Is that kind of what you, from your perspective in the other room happening a lot of times with these ones that don't hit that threshold to go criminal, but it is a still a substantial swing one way or another, 10 25 grand, one way or the other.
1: But the civil issue, the IRS can be negotiated with. There are various avenues to negotiate a tax debt, whatever tax debt that is. That is the capability. If there is a criminal aspect to this, paying your way out of it does not work. So once a criminal investigation is started, let's assume you $100,000, right? And the person's done wrong, and the IRS knocks on the door. Hey, it's a criminal matter now. You're under criminal investigation. Oh, here's a check for $100,000. I'm sorry. Too late. The door's been closed. You can't buy your way out of it. not going to happen. You should have done that last week. That's how it should have worked out. So once there's no buying their way out, out, of, out of a criminal investigation. Just let people know. So you could walk in with a check that day. It doesn't matter. It's going to go forward. So you really have to deserve a criminal investigation to get one, in a sense. And it's not just like it happens like overnight. There is probably months and months of talking with the revenue agent, a revenue officer. There's a lot of stuff going on in the background. This is not like something that happens one day and there's an investigation the next. It's probably six months, year or years in the making. This is not someone doing 56 in a 55 mile an hour zone. This is someone who's doing 85 in a 55, weaving in and out of traffic, throwing beer cans out the window, getting everybody the middle finger. That's the person that needs to be stopped. Very good enough. You're doing that person and you see the blue lights behind you. It's done, right? (laughs) You know, you're caught. You know, you're guilty. There's no buying your way out of the speeding ticket. 56 in a 55, cops will kind of give you a, a warning go on but rsci is not in the business of getting war- warning tickets
0: yeah you have our, to really
1: deserve guys are the together. guys
0: going 64 and we're worried about our car insurance going up a few hundred dollars after that ticket but
1: yeah that's, yeah that's not the that is not what gets people in criminal trouble
0: yeah um kind of closing things out here so one of the things that people get freaked out about are these headlines that came out a couple Couple months ago, where the IRS is spending gazillions of dollars to hire an elite force of IRS agents, young, tough, and gun toting. They had some (laughs) videos of them like showing up with some like wooden guns, or maybe they were real. I don't know, but it just looked funny. And then I remember seeing a video of this, and like the cops were like, Yeah, what are these bozos doing? But there was a lot of PR over this, right? What is your insider's perspective on this propaganda or whatever you want to call it, I guess?
1: There's a couple of things. Number one is the IRS is a government agency. It's a very large and powerful government agency. They are losing a lot of people through attrition. The folks that were hired 20, 25, 30 years ago are now eligible to retire. And if they don't hire or backfill, they're going to lose half their workforce. Now, people would say, oh, I'm glad for that. Well, it's fine and dandy, but those computer printout emails that you get out saying, hey, there's a mismatch here and there is going to cause a lot of problems because there's nobody to fix it once that mail goes out. So you got to have someone on the phone who can be able to help fix the problem if there is a problem. I'm a conservative by nature, but there is a need for someone to collect taxes. Whether we like it or not, somebody has to collect the taxes. Uh, now, whether the abuser their privileges is a different story altogether but someone has to collect the taxes. It's just part of life and what we need to do in order to pay for civilized society. That being said, so the IRS does need to hire people so that I get that. So the 87,000 I'd agree with over a 10 year period of time. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to have to uh, hire people in the next five, 10 years easily because it takes five years for anybody to be good at their job anyways. So even if you hire someone off the street today, it's going to take quite a while for them to be good in their job just to do the right thing. So that's that. The video that people saw was a bunch of to-do about nothing. What's happening is that IRS Criminal Investigations has something called what they call an ADRIAN project, A-D-R-I-A-N, ADRIAN project. It's nothing but be a cop for a day. It's, for, it's a recruiting tool for college students. So college students get the, for about an hour to get the, play cops and robbers and get a little rubber gun and get a a little vest. And they get to do mock undercover operations, mock search warrants, mock interviews, mock surveillance techniques, and all that type of stuff. And usually it culminates in them arresting their teacher because the teacher ends up being the bad guy, right? It's all fun and games, and it's a lot of fun. But for people who are interested in the forensic accounting, using accounting in order to solve financial crime, that's what they do. Of course, like anything else, people take videos of it. And then now you see a bunch of people with the uh, vests and rubber guns running around and they think, oh, this is your new crew. No, they're just 18, 19 year olds just learning about the job in general. That's all they are. They're just special agents from the day and the IRS kind of like the kind of idea of what's it like to be in this type of career. That's really yeah. all it is. So,
0: yeah, it's like videotaping people doing their CPR training for that time before lunch before the donuts come or that was that pass it's, with the fire extinguisher y'all ain't going to fight no fires but they got to no, teach that
1: no again. but people they made it into a big to do it about nothing and then there was unfortunately congressional um congressman actually saying it's 87,000 armed IRS agents and the answer is no there's no 87,000 armed IRS agents it can't happen it's not going to happen it can't happen logistically it won't happen there's only 2,000 special agents that carry firearms. They're how they qualified, how they trained, how they vetted. Uh, you just don't take anybody off the street, and hand them a gun, and say go collect taxes. It doesn't work that way. It takes six months of training at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which is with the Secret Service and Homeland Security and ATF and NCIS and all those other guys go to the same training. You get the same training. With IRS, as you do with these other special agents and these other agencies, so there is a there's a lot to it than just saying that we're going to hire eighty seven thousand IRS agents, especially armed. It's not going to happen. There's only two or three thousand. There's two thousand of them out there right now, and the school can only lat can only handle about maybe two hundred, three hundred max per year they could put through. Now. You got a long ways to, to three hundred a year to get to eighty seven thousand. Sorry, it's not gonna happen.
0: Yeah, so just a fun bar of it, folks. Don't worry about people it. People
1: just much. getting up to do about <laughs> nothing, but they do. Whether they like the IRS or not, they're gonna have to. They being the IRS and government, gonna have to hire people to replace. They're just gonna have to do it because sooner or later, it falls upon its the weight. It'll crumble if people understand that they can get away with not paying taxes. People will. And if there's no audit function at all, well, then people are going to do whatever they want, whatever they're going to do. And they're not going to file their tax returns like they're supposed to. And then you're really behind the aid ball because it takes a couple of years to ratchet up. Imagine where a society decides not to pay its taxes for a year or two. It's just going to be total chaos. So I'm not a doom and gloomer type of guy, but I do understand that there is a need for. At least keeping a bare minimum level of IRS employees hired and doing their job.
0: So, yeah, not become China where nobody pays their taxes and then they have to create some stupid lottery where you put your receipts in and then maybe you win a prize (laughs) or something. (laughs) But I, yeah, I totally agree. Like, at least from our perspective as the operators of these deals, like we have, we interact with our CPAs who file on our behalf. And the number one excuse that they give us is, yeah, we're trying to get these guys on the phone to ask them a semi-technical question, and they just can't get anybody on the phone, and they have to work via fax machine. There is, and...
1: there is a problem with the IRS in many ways. One of them is only – ten. I think 10% of the calls are actually answered. You can't run a business that way if you don't have enough people to answer phones. That's the bare minimum, right? The bare minimum is someone to answer the phone. That's how it works. Now from a technical technology infrastructure, yes, no one uses fax machines anymore, but the IRS still does right. And they're still using stuff from the 1960s actually when it comes to software because it's reliable and still works. Uh, on the flip side, you have to re- we all also have to realize this too is the IRS is probably one of the number one, number one agencies out there that people try to hack into every single day. Pair information is extremely important. Privacy is extremely important. You just don't want anybody getting access to the information. Or holding the IRS hostage because somebody put some type of encryption on there and all of a sudden there's some malware in the system and now gotta catch it. You don't want to shut down the whole US economy just because of people are not doing what they're supposed to do from an encryption standpoint, technology standpoint. They have to deal with that as well. That's a it's a huge issue. Believe it or not, if a if a computer of a criminal investigator gets stolen or lost, that has to be returned in within hours. That information and goes all the way up to Secretary Treasury. It's a huge deal losing your computer. So it's a very big deal.
0: Well, Robert, thanks for jumping on. Any last thoughts for the? Hopefully, we we decrease some people's stress at home. But (laughs) I guess from your see, any parting words or final thoughts and and any other things that folks should know?
1: The best way to stay out of trouble with the IRS is just file timely and file accurately. That's the best way to handle it. And if someone has a position tax-wise that's reasonable, then take it. Nothing wrong with tax avoidance. Highly recommended. It's just when things go south, you lie about it, you start creating false documents, that becomes a crime. But tax avoidance was 100% okay.
0: Yeah. If you guys want to check out Robert's book, Criminal Tax Secrets, on Amazon, and then also check out his website, norlandercpa.com. N-O-R-D-L-A-N-D-E-R-C-P-A.com. And yeah, appreciate jumping on, Robert.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it, Lance. It's, it's a pleasure talking to you. And I have a second book coming out, just to let you know, in March. It's called Unpaid Payroll Taxes, a time bomb you can defuse. And it's for small businesses that have employees, CPAs, enrolled agents or attorneys that have small businesses that they represent as well. If there's payroll tax problems, this book is to help them navigate the waters because payroll taxes are a huge issue. I want to become unpaid. The pleasure pleasure being with you guys, and good luck to you and your audience out there.
0: Stay calm, folks. Cash flow on. Bye. And that's a wrap, folks. I hope you guys liked the show. Now, we talked a lot about the difference between tax evasion, tax avoidance. Dale, I'm a little unclear where that line lies, but I think most of you guys out there are probably a little bit too conservative and you need to look at your other business deductions or how you're doing using passive losses to lower your income. And that's what the community is for, right? That's why people join our family office group to get around other people who are actually doing it, who've been doing it for years, and to build relationships with that pe- these people and also kind of through osmosis, understand what are the best practices on how other people are doing this legally. It can mean the difference. A lot of people who jump into the foom, they save 50000 some even a couple $100,000 a year in taxes without investing a dime with some of this taxes stuff, especially if you're making over $300,000 a year. It's just this taxes stuff. The IRS is, has all these incentives put into place, and real estate is one of the biggest ones. And it's important to understand how to use this stuff. If this is all new to you, go to com slash tax. There I keep a public page there. Of course, if you join the club, you get access to more of the insider, more of the more cutting edge stuff we kind of work on, more tax stuff there too. You can join there at com slash club. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye.